Well, let's try one more round. The first round, we dealt with assigned seating that as it relates to this issue of humility, it's our proper perspective on God's position and those prerogatives that attach that to that position that will help us on this road to glory. In the last session, we asked David to testify, and he gave us some soul music. The great musician that he was gave us a little lick, just a little jingle that focused on how we can quiet the noise on the inside and let our souls hope in and trust in God. I want to call Paul to the witness stand for this last excursion in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I invite you to keep your Bible open there. I'm going to go old school um, Baptist churches. In my tradition, what we would, the preacher will do is he'll read the passage just so you'll have the context, and then he'll say, but I'm taking for my text such and such, and it'll just be a few verses. So that's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to read starting from actually chapter 11, verse 30, up through chapter 12, verse 10, but I'll be taking for my text verses 7 through 10. So join me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 30. Before I go forward, let me once again thank the, and I know they're not in here, but the culinary ministry or Whoever it is that's providing the food, oh my goodness. Uh, thank <laughs> It's a two-edged sword. They fed us so well, I kept telling Carolyn, man, this is like Sunday dinner, so don't take your Baptist nap just yet. Uh, let me try to get halfway through, and we'll see. If we need to do a seventh-inning stretch, I'll get you up or whatever. But please... Uh, Thank the kitchen ministry again for me and, and everybody on staff, everyone who's been attending to us. The hospitality has been outstanding. And thank you once again for your anticipated attention. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 reads thusly. It says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want to talk about the divine paradox, strength in weakness. It's strange how business is conducted in certain parts of the kingdom 
now. I was reading a report yesterday from a whistleblower who, as part of a large ministry, whose name, if I called, everyone would know, but it's not important, has an honorarium scheme where basically when you become a part of that family, there's this framework that they've put together for honorariums to such an extent where some of the big names in gospel proclamation get upwards of $100,000 for speaking at their conference. But then you invite somebody from that ministry to your conference and you pay them exorbitant fees and they have a schedule. They have sort of a, a framework of what various preachers are given when they attend these conferences. What's striking to me as I looked at the little report is that some of these names are making more at one conference than the average pastor is making in a year because it's still the case that more than 90% of the pastors, at least here in the United States, are pastoring churches of 150 and less. And most are bivocational, having to work their secular jobs and then coming to care for the flock. It's interesting how these super preachers, these mega stars, can command such popularity as well as financial remuneration. And what's even more striking to me is how through social media, if I called the names, and I won't because I don't want you to lose track of where I am, you would know each and every one of these names, and many of us follow them, and if we're not careful, some even want to emulate them. But super preachers, super apostles didn't start in 2023. Paul was dealing with that back in his day. As a matter of fact, we're in that section of his letter where he's addressing that very phenomenon and defending his ministry. Now, the book starts and ends with comfort, and he's trying to comfort the Corinthians, but he's starting in chapter 10 defending the fact that though he doesn't command the honorariums, though he doesn't have as many Facebook, Instagram, TikTok followers as this so-called super class of apostles, he's still the real deal. As a matter of fact, he decides not to boast in what he makes from people or how popular he is on the circuit. He decides to boast in some crazy things. If you look in chapter 11, he talks about as compared to these super apostles who seem to mesmerize people with the fact that, you know, they had some kind of vision or that the Lord dropped something in their spirit or somehow or another, uh, they must be the real deal because look at how successful they are. Paul says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beat. I've been run out of town more times than I can count. I've had pressures on the outside as it relates to dishonest brothers and the, the uh, sect of the circumcised. And I've had pressures on the inside as I've been concerned about the very nature of the church. And at the end of chapter 11, he talks about 
if I am going to boast, I'm going to boast about the things that show my weakness, my inability. He's going to go on to argue the same argument I want to make to you today, that by embracing my limitations, I open myself up to God's limitless power. He says, <laughs> they boast in their success. Let me boast in something. I was on the run, and they had to let me down in a basket through a window in a wall. Literally, actually, if you read the text, in the middle of the night. And he goes on to say, I'm, I, I want to keep boasting, but let me get to my text. He says that they think that they, that they mesmerize you because of their sort of uh, take on extra biblical revelation. He said, man, I've taken a virtual tour of the third heaven, and I saw things that it's not lawful for me, it's not permitted for me to even discuss down here. And here's what happened to me. And this is where I want to take my text. Look at chapter 12, starting in verse 7. He says that to keep me from being conceited. Now, <laughs> let me show my hand. The reason I'm sharing what I'm getting ready to share, and this is why I need you to pay attention, because I believe that God has a certain pattern, that there's a certain paradigm that he follows as it relates to fine-tuning his vessels for maximum impact. And part of that fine-tuning is this issue of humility, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge you that humility has a process to it that very often involves humiliation. Because God is trying to get us to embrace our limits so that we can access his limitless power. Paul says, in order to keep me from being conceited, that's the opposite of humility. <laughs> in order to keep me humble, here's what God did for me as a gift. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, because I would be puffed up in light of what God has allowed me to access, allowed me to experience. Here's what God did for me. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet or to harass me. Now, this is interesting if you take the time to think about it. He said it was a gift from God, but in the same breath, he says it was a messenger of Satan. A thorn was given, a messenger of Satan, to Buffett. This speaks to the mystery of pain, but more so the ministry of frailty. Listen carefully. There's a mystery that we have to accommodate in our theology, and that means that some of us might have to adjust, and that is this, that even though the enemy is out for your destruction, God uses whatever that enemy intended for evil and he will make it a good outcome for you. I already called Joseph to the witness stand. Let's let Paul just keep talking. He says it was a thorn. Now, what was the thorn? We don't know. He said it's a thorn in the flesh. Some commentators say, you know, it had something to do with his eyes because you remember when he was struck blind on the Damascus road and then how uh, Ananias came and spoke and the scales fell from his eyes. And there's some internal evidence within the epistles about Paul's uh, sort of handwriting being a certain way and people try to surmise, well, maybe it was a problem with his eyes. Maybe it was some other kind of problem because according to chapter 11, he's been beaten, he's uh, with stripes, he's been left, he's been stoned at least a couple of times, and left for dead. Uh, he's been shipwrecked and stayed out in the sea for a long time. Any one of those things could leave some debilitating, lingering effects. I was having a hard time getting up from lunch today. 
Because <laughs> I'm 60 years old and my hips, my knees, you know, stuff is just the regular wear and tear. Wear and, wear and tear could be debilitating, let alone what Paul went through. We don't know what the flesh was, what the thorn was, but we know it was a thorn in the flesh. And maybe it's good that we don't know because the point is each one of us has a thorn. Now, what was the point of the thorn? The idea, and let me be specific, when it says a thorn in the flesh, it's not talking about a rosebud. It's not talking about like a thorn you get when you're picking a flower. It's literally like a stake, like a, like a tent stake that, that nails something down that would otherwise fly away. And that's literally what he's saying. So that I would not be, what, lifted up in my heart? So that I wouldn't have haughty eyes? So that I wouldn't be preoccupied with things that I can't understand? God nailed me down with something that the enemy intended to take me out with. It was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, but it was a gift from God to stabilize me. Your theology is going to have to accommodate the fact that some of the stuff that you think is bad was actually good for you because it kept you on your knees. It kept you recognizing that you ain't all that. It kept you from relying on the fact I got a degree, so that means I got some understanding. No, you still need the wisdom that only God can provide. <laughs> if you're going to be able to count all of this joy. Paul says, there was a thorn given me by God's gracious, sovereign act. Even though the enemy meant it for, meant it for harassment, meant it to buffet me, to pummel me, God was using it to keep me grounded. Because within, listen carefully, Within the mystery of human pain and the ministry of human frailty, God has a function that he's accomplishing, and that is your stability. So that means, yeah, you got to go on back to that church, to that marriage, to that situation, to that job, to that situation, knowing that regardless of what the devil meant, the devil ain't nothing but a dog on God's chain. And he can yank the chain whenever he gets ready. And the devil cannot do what God will not allow. And God is not going to allow anything that will not ultimately wind up for your good. As you learn how to <laughs> depend on him. But, but it, it wasn't just that. Look at the next verse. He says... A thorn was given me, a messenger of Satan. And he says, but I prayed about this thing. Am I reading my Bible right? You look in your Bible. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should lead me. It's not just the ministry of frailty, the ministry of frustration. Now think about this. This is Paul saying that I prayed to God three times that this thing would be removed from Paul prayed? Wait a minute. This is the guy that when Eutychus fell out the window, dead, Paul prayed and he got back up. This is the Paul who prayed for people and they got healed. This is the Paul that they would take the napkin that he wiped himself with as a tent maker and go lay it on people and they would be recovered. But then he prayed for himself, and all of a sudden, God going to start acting funny. That's what, that's what perturbs me about God. And I, let me just be frank with you. Because even as a pastor, even as a minister, sometimes I'll pray for other people. I'll pray, God, heal this person. And I've seen it. I'm not talking about what I read now. I'm talking about what I know. I've seen God heal people instantaneously. I've seen them say, Pastor, the doctor says there's a spot on my lung. They think it's cancerous. Can you have the saints pray for me? We pray for them, and they go back, and the doctor comes and says, we don't know what happened. We know there was a spot there. Now we can't find it. 
I've heard testimonies from doctors saying God must have did that. So I know what God can do. I've prayed for other people's children and other people's marriages and watched God work wonders. I've, I've seen couples at my church, even now I'm thinking about a couple who really, if they got divorced, I would say, you know what? I, I, I think, man. And they say, you know what? Pastor, pray for us. And they prayed. I prayed for them. They got into counseling, got that thing together, and now they're stronger than they ever was. And they don't even look like what they've been through. But then here it is. I get sick. Or my children are struggling. Or my marriage. I've been married 33 years. I was telling a brother earlier, he was sharing some things, and I said, brother, I know exactly where you are. And it frustrates me that how is it I can pray for somebody else and God look like you put them on Amazon Prime and I pray for me and it's, you know, FedEx. They didn't lost the package, can't find it, ain't got no tracking number. What, how is this even possible? Except there's a ministry in frustration that God very often allows us, allows us to serve other people even out of our frustration. I don't have it all together, but somehow or another, and this is what Paul opens this book with. He says, the Father of, mercy, Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the same of comfort with which we were comforted. That is to say, he allows me not only to be stabilized, but he allows me that measure of frustration that will keep me dependent on him and keep me, listen carefully, keep me from relying on my professional acumen because I'm a pastor. I've seen this before. Now, all you need to do is this and that and the other. And according to the scripture, it'll be okay. No, no. He lets me have frustrating things where I have to fast. I have to pray. I got to call out unto God. I got to call my brothers in and say, man, pray with me. I can't handle this thing so that I can learn it's not by power nor by might. It's by God's spirit that things are accomplished. He allows me to experience frustration because part of the divine paradox is if I can embrace my limits, then I get access to his limitless power. If I stop relying, listen, if I stop relying on my battery, then I got to plug into him. Because my battery will go dead after a while. <laughs> but if I plug into the power source, there's unlimited power. Yeah. See, he, he says, there was a thorn given me, it was a gift, even though Satan meant it to harass and pummel me. I prayed to God about this thing three times. And here's what the answer was. Thank you for helping us earlier, brother. Just because the answer is not what you want it to be doesn't mean that God didn't answer it. Here's what God's answer was. Are you seeing it in your Bible in verse 9? He says, my grace is enough. Listen, if you don't get nothing out of anything else I said, just remember, the same grace that engendered the new birth in you is the same grace that's going to keep you, the same grace that's going to encourage, the same grace that's going to enlighten you. God's grace is enough because that's all you got anyway. God's grace, his, his favor, his kind disposition toward you, not based on anything that you've earned, any merit, any intrinsic value, just the fact that his policy toward us is loving kindness and grace. When God was asked, what's your resume? Exodus chapter 34, around verse 6. Show me your glory. God said, here's who I am. I'm the Lord. The Lord merciful and gracious. 
slow to get angry, plenteous in loving kindness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, by no means clearing the guilty. His grace is enough. He says, here's how this thing works. Because my power, look in your Bible, is made perfect in weakness. So in this divine paradox, he's given us here some insight about intimacy. Listen carefully. He says, my ability finds its completion, finds its goal, finds its fulfillment in your weakness. My power shows up best in weak vessels. The <laughs> um, tremendous violinist Paganini playing his violin as only he could. And as he was playing, one of the strings broke. Paganini just kept on playing. But as he kept playing, another string broke. And everybody just knew, okay, the concert's over. It's a violin, he broke two strings, that's it. But Paganini kept on playing. Finally, another string broke. And he stopped. Everybody said, the concert's over. This is it. But he announced to the crowd, Paganini on one string. And he kept on playing. Because he was such a maestro, he didn't need but one string. Listen, God is so powerful. His grace is so sufficient that in your weakness, even if you ain't got but one string, he'll make a masterpiece out of that because it gets at the real goal, which is his glory. And very often, his glory shows up best in earthen vessels, in weak vessels, in people who cannot handle it because when you show up and they hear the music, they say, that was God on one string. I ain't got but one good string. <laughs> and God did something with that. He says, my grace is sufficient because my power, my ability, finds its greatest display in your weakness. In your weakness. In your inability. This is a tremendous insight my brothers, because now it helps us to understand what we ought to be boasting in. Paul here says, I glory in the fact that I cannot do it. I glory in the fact that I'm weak. I know these super apostles, they have impressive resumes and, you know, they uh, command great honorariums. But I'd rather boast in the fact that I need God. And I, listen, and I don't need him generically. I need him every hour, every moment, every second, every day, because his grace is not only what has engendered salvation in me, his grace is what is sustaining me. So therefore, I am going to brag, I'm going to boast, I'm going to glory, and this is what humility, just so you can track with us, this is what humility looks like. It's not boasting in self-achievement. It's boasting in what God can accomplish despite me. It's highlighting that God took my one string and he's making something beautiful out of it. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, wait a minute, may rest upon me. Now here it is. <laughs> This is why humility, this is why we've been studying this. We're not just being humble just to be humble. The idea is there's an intimacy attached to embracing my limits so that God's limitless power can be flowing through me because there's an intimacy that comes with that. It says his power rests on me. This idea almost of like uh, not just dwelling, uh, it's this idea of tabernacle of, of, of tenting with me, of overshadowing me, of residing with me, that 
the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because I'm him, in my weakness, God's, Christ's power rests upon me, not in the sense that he necessarily takes thorns away or does not allow the harassment to cease, but somehow or another, he gets in this thing with me. He dwells with me. Young woman had a toddler. She asked her father to come over and spend time with her and the toddler. And she said, Dad, uh, I'm going to go ahead and fix some lunch. You go ahead and spend some time with Junior. And so she heard them in their rough housing and just, you know, making a lot of noise. And so she said, you know what, I got to get... I, I got to get this lunch together. I said, Dad, I'm going to put Junior in this playpen, and you just go ahead and watch TV, okay? And so she went back into the kitchen, and she heard them giggling and roughhousing again. Grandpa was on the floor playing with the kid. She said, Dad, now, I, I, I told you, I need you to let him stay in the pay, playpen. I'm going to fix lunch, and then once I get lunch done, we can all get together. Now, I'm going to put him back in this playpen. Don't you let him get out of there. He said, okay. So she went back, fixed lunch, and she heard them roughhousing again. Heard them giggling and just knocking about. She said, I know he didn't get this baby out of the playpen. She went and looked in there, and Grandpa had got in the playpen with the kid. He said, you said don't take him out. You didn't say I couldn't get in with him. And the truth of the matter is, very often God does not get us out of trouble, but if we embrace our limits, he'll get in the thing with us. The Lord with us. He was with Joseph through the pit and through uh, Potiphar's house and through the palace. If you read the scripture, it says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David. The Lord was with Esther, the, uh, pardon me, uh, with Daniel. The Lord was with his people. And he promises to be with us. The Bible says that his power is made perfect, is perfected, has its completion in our weaknesses. So Paul says, that's why I'm going to boast in the fact that I can't do it because that's when his power rests on me, tabernacles with me. He goes on to say in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, wait a minute, this is a very interesting turn of phrase, because now he's changing the locus of our focus. I started off by saying that the job of the preacher is to be the focus puller, and really the main character in this text is not Paul. It's the one who has the power that helps Paul. He says... For the sake of Christ, then here's what my brag, here's what my boast, here's what I'm going to glory in. I'm going to glory in, I'm going to be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. For the sake of Christ, why would he say that? How does that fit in, for the sake of Christ? I started out by telling you that this, what's at stake when we talk about this road to glory, this idea of humility, is the glory of God and the plausibility of the gospel. And here Paul is bringing that to full relief. Because the gospel itself is a gospel of weakness. That God used the weak things to confound the strong. And that those who would embrace the weakness of the cross are the ones who find the power of the cross and the power of his resurrection to be made manifest in their lives. Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I don't draw, here it is, I don't draw attention to myself except my inabilities except my weaknesses, except the fact that I go through insults and calamities. Why? Because when 
I'm weak. This is just a pattern as it relates to the gospel. When I'm at my helpless estate, that's when God's power shows up. That's when God's power comes to bear because the gospel is the power of God under salvation to those who believe, those who embrace their limitations, that I cannot save myself. I need somebody bigger than me. And therefore, I will get excited when I can't do it because I know now daddy got to show up. Now somebody bigger is going to have to help me. This came to full, in full relief to me. One day when I was in Kankakee, Illinois, there's a restaurant called Hardy's back there. I don't know if they have it here. And at this particular Hardy's restaurant, they had these types of chairs that were bolted to the floor in order to get in, you had to sort of swivel in or swivel out. And so I was there minding my own business. And uh, in Kankakee, Illinois, back in the day, uh, we had a mental hospital. Matter of fact, if you were from Chicago or any place else, they said, we're going to send you to Kankakee. That meant you're going to the mental facility. Somebody who was obviously having some challenges mentally came into the Hardy's restaurant and for whatever reason picked me out of the whole crowd and he was bigger than me agitated clearly intent on some type of chaos and he came and stood right over me and said you better not move I'll kill you right here now I had a problem I'm in a chair that It only swivels in and out, and he's blocking the only way I can swivel. And he's bigger than me. And he's obviously got some challenges that he has no filter. So before I could do anything, there was a man sitting with his wife and daughter at another table across the restaurant. He didn't look like me. He had the girth that suggested that he could toss bales of hay. <laughs> he had overalls on. There was nothing in common that we had. As a matter of fact, I found out later in his pickup truck he had rifles and hound dogs. We were as opposite as could be. But he saw what was going on. And he left his table, came over to where I was, and he spoke to my problem. He said, and I'm quoting, this man ain't done nothing to you. If you do anything to him, you're going to have to answer to me. That's what he said. That's how he said it. Now my problem had a problem. <laughs> because the man who left his comfort to come to my rescue was bigger than my problem. And all of a sudden, I don't know if it was therapy, I don't know what you call it or whatever, but all of a sudden he got sense. <laughs> and he left me alone. I didn't get that man's name. All I know is he left his comfort and he came to my rescue. He didn't have to do it, but I'm glad that he did. And if I knew his name, I would call his name to you right now and say my rescuer's name was so-and-so. But I don't know his name. But I do know the name of one who left his comfort, though he was very God, took on the form of a servant and came to where I was, tabernacled with us, and he rescued me. And I stand here to proclaim his name because it's a name above every name that can be named. And as a matter of fact, his name, at his name, every knee is going to have to bow. 
And every tongue is going to have to confess because there's power in that name that can not only heal and deliver, but can sustain, provide, and preserve. There's only one name that makes the difference and only one name worth boasting in. It's the name of the one who has resurrection power. Not just power to lay down his life on our behalf, but power to pick it up when he gets ready. See, that's a different type of power. When you, na- when you name the round that you're going to knock somebody out in, that's a different type of power. He said, I'm going to lay my life down, but in three days, I'm going to pick it up. And early on that Sunday morning, when he got up with resurrection power in his hand, now I have someone that I can boast in because when I'm powerless, that's when his power shows up best. In case you don't know, his name is Jesus. He's the one that was prophesied that though he would not, brew, he, though he would not put out a smoldering wick or snap off a bruised reed. This is the one that himself was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And now by his stripes we are healed. His name is Jesus. He's the only one worth boasting in. Paul says, look, because I've understood this divine paradox, I know that it was a gift that God gave me this thorn, and so I've stopped fighting against it. I've embraced my limits because when I've embraced it, I've recognized that God's limitless power because he told me his grace is sufficient for me and his power is perfected in my weaknesses. So now I don't boast and brag in what I've done or what I have achieved or what I can garner in popularity or honorarium I boast in my weaknesses. And I'm not just boasting in it, I'm content. I'm content. Listen, I'm not noisy on the inside because I've settled in my heart and mind. This is what it is. And my limits just give Christ the opportunity to show his limitless power. I'm done. When I say this, he says, I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. How can I say that when I'm weak, I'm strong? It's because in my weakness, God's power rests upon me. In my weakness, the Holy Spirit helps me. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. He helps me in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, because I don't even know how to pray as I ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep to be uttered. In my weakness, I get insight into the fact that I can depend on him because his power is greater than mine. And I can enjoy intimacy with him because his power flows through me. When I was moving from Oakland, California, getting ready to come back to Kankakee, Illinois, we were packing all of our stuff up in the U-Haul. My son was two years old at the time. For some reason, he wanted to help us, and so he was trying to carry a chair. It was too big for him. So what I did, he finally said, Daddy. He didn't even ask anything. He just said, Daddy. And I knew what that meant. So I put him in the chair and then picked up the chair with him in it so that he would know that in your weakness, that's when I'm strong. If you'll let me carry it, I'll carry you and what you're struggling with. That's a word to somebody here today. Stop trying to be something you're not. You ain't all of that. I know you got the degree. I know you're the pastor. I know you're the husband. I know I get it. I get all of that. I've gone through all of that too. But I'd rather boast in the fact that God did it for me. Somebody was, the young man keeps on saying, he graduated from UC Berkeley. That's true. But what he didn't tell you is, when I first went to UC Berkeley, after that first semester, I was on academic probation. 
Dean Hill, my, the, the dean at the time, he called me in. He said, all right, Ed, he said, now, you seem like you're struggling here, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take over your curriculum from here on in. You don't get to choose the classes that you're going to take. I said, great. So he laid out the curriculum for the rest of my years there at UC Berkeley. But before I left, I happened to look at it. I said, wait a minute. I'm sorry, uh, Dean. You've uh, uh, made a mistake here. I'm already struggling, but I'm looking at the classes you've laid out here. These are all the hardest classes in the curriculum. He said, yeah, I know that. I said, okay. So what are we doing here? He said, son, you don't understand something. He said, we wouldn't have let you in here unless we knew you could finish. I've given you all the hard classes because I'm not concerned about your career here. I'm concerned about you passing the bar exam. And these classes that you're taking right here will prepare you for the bar. So yes, I know they're the hardest classes. I know you were the top of your class when you got here, coming from Kankakee, but now you're here and everybody's tops of the class and you're struggling, but that's all right. You take what I've laid out and everything gonna be okay. And guess what? I would be in there, man, studying. <laughs> class is kicking my behind. And every now and then, I'd see Dean Hill come by class, and he'd just peep his head in. He'd just nod at me. I said, well, I'll just keep on going. <laughs> I just kept on studying, kept on doing it. And then Dean Hill would keep on checking in, checking in on me. And he would say, make sure you get a good relationship with your professors. And some professors, I just went and embraced my limits. I said, listen, I don't understand that. They say, okay, come on. We're going to give you some extra work. They gave me extra work. And then by God's grace, I did graduate. By the time I graduated, because of all the extra work, I was who's who among American law students and this and that, all these other types of things that had nothing to do with me except for the fact that somebody said, I'm taking over your curriculum because we got a reputation to uphold the glory of this school. And I'll never forget when I graduated and walked across the stage because, you know, it's a, a lot of pomp and circumstances, law school and all this kind of stuff. You know, you're supposed to be shouting and hollering, all that kind of thing. Everybody's marching, you know, with great solemnity and dignity and all those types of things. And when it was my turn, when they called my name, I came up on stage and Dean Hill stopped. He shook my hand. And he didn't say this to anybody else in my class. He shook my hand. He said, made it, and gave me a hug. Because the one who told me I was going to make it ensured that I took the hardest classes, and he checked on me because he was getting me ready for a day where I was going to have to stand before the bar. And I was able to do what God has called me to do. But it wasn't easy. Here's all I'm trying to say. But his grace was sufficient. Because when I embraced my limits, God's limitless power, I tell that story because that's what heaven is going to be like for me. <laughs> Some of y'all, y'all have had it easy. But I've, I've, I've been on the slow bus sometimes. I've had to go, I've had to repeat some grades in grace. I haven't gotten it right all the time. But I really believe when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, made it. You made it by my grace because I've been checking on you and I've kept you. I provided and I preserved you. Now, brothers, it's all about his grace. That's all I'm trying to say. If you want the road to humility, it's by focusing on the fact that it's God's grace that has been sufficient for every challenge in your life. And it's God's grace that is gonna keep you as you move forward into this next phase, this next season. I wanna close in prayer right here. I wanna pray for you because in a setting this size with pastors here, I know for a fact somebody feels like giving up in some area where they need to hang on. 
with this many married men. I know that there's some marriages struggling. With all these young men that I'm grateful to God are here, I pray that they learn early how to embrace their limits and how to trust in God. So let me pray for you. Great God, my Father, our Father, thank you for reminding us that it's not by power nor by might, but it's by your spirit that things are accomplished. Thank you for the limits. Thank you for the stabilization. Thank you, dear God, even for the insults, the calamities, and the inherent weaknesses that we have that cause us to have to depend on you. I pray right now for every pastor who feels like giving up. I pray, dear God, that by your spirit, you would encourage them and that you would stamp in their minds that your grace is sufficient even for that. That you would deliver them from comparison and competing and even complaining, but that you would help them to relish the fact that they get to see you work in their lives. I pray for every mar marriage that's represented here. We know that Satan is out to destroy that which you love. And I'm asking that you would strengthen our hearts, strengthen our resolve to cast our cares upon you and humble ourselves and to not concern ourselves with things too great for us, but to trust in you that you, that what you brought together, you will keep together, and that the good work you started, even in our marriages, that you will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. I pray for these young men, that you would help them at this young age to learn how to depend completely on you, and not to look for their security and their popularity, but their security in knowing that you are ever-present help. I pray for the senior men here, that you would help us to lean even harder now with more intentionality in on your grace, the same grace that brought us this far. I'm asking if I've prayed anything too small that you would make up the difference, that you would do exceeding abundantly above all that I've even dared to ask, and that you would do it for your glory and our good. For I've prayed it all in Jesus' name, amen.